Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Snafu. Please visit our website and our Patreon page for bonus content such as pictures of the characters, maps of the airfield, Q&A episodes, and much, much more. This podcast contains explicit content that may not be suitable for some audience members. Listener's discretion is advised. Jack was sitting in Mr. Weathers' living room, sipping on a cup of tea that Mr. Weathers had made for Jack. He didn't like it, though, but he never bothered to tell his elderly friend. Sitting down in the chair next to Jack was the 83-year-old frail man who at one time fought alongside General George Meade in the Civil War. Jack had made it a weekly habit to stop by his old friend's house on Saturdays, and he would talk with him, ask him all kinds of questions about the Civil War, until it was time for him to return home for dinner. Mr. Weathers loved having 13-year-old Jack coming over on Saturdays, since it was the one day a week where he felt the most lonely. Years before, Mr. Weathers was married and had three sons, each of whom grew up to do great things and subsequently moved far from where their father and mother was. But back when they were kids, they had reserved Saturdays as their family day. Each week, the family would go on an adventure, either by traveling to a new part of their local area and having a picnic wherever they ended up, or, during off-seasons or days of bad weather, Mr. Weathers would make the entire day a day of relaxation and fun. They would play board games and endless rounds of hide-and-seek until it was time for them to eat a wonderful home-cooked meal. However, once Mr. Weathers' kids grew up and moved away, Saturdays became the day that he and his wife Edna would go for long walks and sit on their porch swing and read books together and even sing songs together. Unfortunately, since she had passed, Saturdays had become quiet and dull. That was until Jack came along. On this particular day, Jack was reading all about General Lee and was asking Mr. Weathers all about General Lee in the Battle of Gettysburg. So when you went up against Lee, did you know at the time that he was called like the best general that there ever was? Jack asked. Oh yeah, of course we did. He was a legend, even to us. You know, we we felt like we were attacking Goliath when we were going up against a man like that. Well, so from your perspective, like, how'd you do it? How'd you beat his forces? Beat? Oh, my boy. We weren't playing a game of chess with them. We fought him and outmaneuvered him. You see, Meade, Meade was clever. And he had boys like me loyal to him. He did? Oh, yes. I would do anything for him. Well, you kind of had to. I mean, he was your general after all. Oh, sure. But you see, there's a difference between having to and wanting to. I wanted to. Well, what made you want to? Jack asked. Leadership, my boy. Leadership. That's it? I mean, doesn't make any sense to me. Aren't all generals leaders? With a slight grin appearing on his face, Mr. Weathers took a sip of his tea 
his hands trembling as he did. And once he was done, he sat back in his chair and began teaching. Of course, but you must understand, not all generals are good leaders. I was fortunate, though. I had Meade as my general. He was good to us. He wasn't the type to bark out orders and send people to lead the charge. He was the kind of man who would lead the charge himself, and he led by example. You know, you, you, you see, Jack, leading, it's, it's a tough thing to understand. It's like an emotion. You can't truly fake it. It's something ingrained inside of you. If you feel it and you have it, then you can accomplish anything with the men that God has bestowed upon you. And trust me, he'll give you those people. You see, Meade was the commander he was because not only did he know his stuff, which is important, but he also was one of us at the end of the day. He wasn't higher up on the food chain than us. He was a human just like us. And we felt that. He led with his feet, not with his lips. If you can figure that out, my boy, if you can figure that out, I promise you, you will go far in this world. Nine years later, May 3rd, 1944, United States Army Air Force Station 186, Thurlow, England, 0655. The briefing room was jam-packed with airmen ready to hear what awaited them. Sitting among them was Jack, Sal, and Timothy. Jack saw on the flight roster that the boss was going to leave the 300th and the 530th squadron from the pilot seat of the bull. But so far, there was no sign of him. Sitting behind Jack and his crew was Parnell, who at the moment was talking with someone from the 531st squadron. Sitting in the front of Jack were the four officers from Desperate Journey. This would be their first official mission, and by the looks on their faces, they were all very much nervous. As Jack waited for the briefing to start, he thought it would be prudent of him to go over a few things with Sal and Timothy about what to expect when flying a mission with the boss. While Jack talked, Tango, Bill Davies, and the other two men from their crew walked in. 
Jack hadn't spoken to Tango much since he made the announcement of his new disbelief in God the night before. It wasn't that Tango didn't understand. Of all people, Tango probably understood better than anyone else. It was more about the fact that Tango knew how painful of a change this was for Jack. Jack had been struggling for quite some time, and it wasn't until he heard Gerald and Douglas talking about their faith that he fully came to terms with what he had internally decided. As Jack continued informing Sal and Timothy, Jack was surprised to see Hillhouse now standing in the aisle at the end of the row of chairs. Hillhouse? Jack said, looking over at the formation board. The day's roster for the 530th Squadron consisted of the boss and the rest of Loda Bull flying the number one spot, with Brolin and the rest of Hilling Mary flying the number two spot. Ronnie and the rest of Hellfire from Above will be flying the number three spot, with Parnell and Fenway Bombshell flying the number four spot. Taking up the number five spot would be Tango and the rest of Bad Penny, with finally Desperate Journey taking up the number six spot in the formation. Nowhere on the flight roster for any of the three squadrons selected to fly today was dropping deuces. After Hillhouse squeezed himself down the row of wooden chairs where Jack and his crew were sitting and took a seat next to Jack, Jack asked him, What are you doing here? I didn't see your name on the roster. Yeah, so, okay, there's three things going on here. The first one is that I was woken up about 20 minutes ago and I was told that I was filling in for someone. Second, I didn't find out until I got to the roster table that I was replacing Captain Bacchus. Replacing? Jack questioned. Yeah, listen, I don't know what's going on or what's happening, but um, the third thing is uh, I was also told that we are no longer going to be leading the 530 squadron today. Well, then if we're not, then who is? Jack asked before he felt a nudge from Sal, who was pointing to the formation board. An officer was climbing a ladder and erased both Jack's crew and Brolin's crew. He then put Brolin and Hailing Mary as the 530 Squadron lead, and then put Lieutenant Hellhouse and Jack in as the number two spot in the 530 Squadron formation. Something didn't seem right to Jack. The boss wouldn't skip out on a mission, especially one where he would be selected to lead the entire squadron. He most certainly wouldn't dare put Brolin and the rest of Hilling Mary as a squadron lead. Before Jack could think any more on the oddity of the situation, that's when Colonel Poole entered into the room. Walking up to the stage, Jack began to wonder where he and his crew were going to go today. Once Colonel Poole arrived at the front, he turned around and didn't even bother making his usual battle-ready speech. His face looked impatient, and his voice sounding agitated. As the curtain was pulled back, he simply said, Gentlemen, the target for today is the harbor in Nantes, France. 45 minutes later, the enlisted men were waiting by their troop truck for the officers to come out of their briefings. So far... Only Willie, Tommy, Beans, Muth, and Marshy had been selected to fly today. Mills was on potato duty, and the men were unsure as to who was going to be replacing him. Willie and Tommy were talking amongst themselves on the side of the troop truck, dressed in their fatigues. The rest of their flight clothes and equipment were in their hands or in the back of the troop truck. 
The reason for this was due to the temperature, which was a muggy 67 degrees. Standing in the back of the troop truck was Beans, Muth, and Marshy. Muth was his Muth was his normal stoic-like self, while Marshy was oozing nervous energy. Marshy's feet were wiggling as he stood up straight and listened to Beans run through the list of what he could expect today. Cutting him off, Marshy said, Look, I got it, I got it, I got it. Seriously, I got it. Look, why are we just standing here? Well, it's because we're waiting for the officers to arrive. Beans responded. Well, why, why can't they just meet us at the plane? Asked Marshy. Because if they didn't, he would have nothing to bitch about. Fired Muth. I mean, I just don't know why we have to stand here like a bunch of dicks on a log. I'm, I'm ready to shoot at the Huns. You know, get myself a Nazi kill. Well, then start walking. We'll pick you up on our way to the target. Muth fired back. Funny. Good one, California. Willie yelled out after overhearing the conversation. Just as Marshy began getting fired up, his friend Shitbird called out and approached him, and the rest of Little Bull. Well, hey there, Shitbird. Tell me you're going to be flying with us today, Marshy asked, since Shitbird was a waste gunner. No, I'm with my new crew, Shitbird answered. New crew? What happened to your old one? Asked Marshy. I was taken from Lieutenant Talbot's crew, and then I was assigned to a Lieutenant Booker's crew. He goes by some weird name like Tangy or something. Oh, darn. So this is your first mission then too, huh? With a new crew and everything? Beans asked. That's right. Shipper responded. Just then, another person approached the group. This time, nobody recognized the face. The kid was dressed in his flag clothes and had his oxygen mask hanging off of his leather helmet. And he had pure terror in his eyes. Is this, is this Captain Bacchus's crew? The kid asked, looking down at a piece of paper, which was shaking in his hand. Uh, yeah, sort of. Why? Who are you? Asked Beans. I'm, uh, I'm Sergeant Christopher. You got yourself a first name there, Sergeant Christopher? Willie asked, peering around the troop truck with Tommy. Uh, uh Reed? He replied. You a gunner? Tommy asked. Uh, yeah, I am. I'm a voice gunner. It was at this moment that the men realized that the kid was here to replace Mills on the mission. Gotcha. Well, the, here, the thing is, we are actually in need of a ball turn gunner. You see, we already have two waste gunners, myself and Beans here. Tommy began to explain before being cut off by Beans, who said, Nice try, Tommy. You're the shortest one here. You're not putting him in that turret. Tommy rolled his eyes and suddenly mocked Beans to Willie. The two men began giggling to each other. Well there, Sergeant Christopher, is this your first mission? Asked Beans. It, it, it is, he replied. Well then, welcome to the crew, Beans introduced, citing that it would be Muth and Marshy's first mission as well. As Marshy wished his friend Shitbird good luck on the mission, the men dispersed when they spotted the officers exiting their briefing huts and heading towards their troop trucks and jeeps. Within five minutes... Hillhouse, Jack, Sal, and Timothy arrived at their troop truck, and after a small moment of introducing the new officers to the rest of the enlisted men, the men got into the back of the troop truck and made their way to their plane. About 15 minutes later, the enlisted men had just finished going through their checklist of their plane. The plane they would be flying in today was an older F-model B-17 called 
for mother and country. Since Lord of Bull wasn't done being patched up yet, the bomber was set to take its place for this mission. The plane had a total of 27 completed missions under its belt, and as the man read through their checklist, they could see the war-weary scars all over the exterior and interior of the plane. The enlisted men all stepped outside of their plane for a moment to grasp the smell of fresh springtime morning air. In doing so, the men began making small talk and were doing everything they could to stay loose. Down in the nose, Timothy and Sal crammed themselves into their positions. Timothy was terrified at the fact that he had to defend himself with a single 50 caliber machine gun which was placed in the nose cone in front of him instead of using the chin turret that he was trained with and used to. Sal's navigator space was more cramped than the planes he had trained with back in the States. He had a 50 caliber machine gun in the middle window, practically right above his desk. He felt very cramped and claustrophobic. Up in the cockpit, Hillhouse and Jack were finishing up their pre-flight checks. Once they did, Jack looked out of his co-pilot's window at the rustle and bustle of Thurlow's airfield, with the beautiful English countryside hanging as a backdrop behind it. He, uh, you, um, you okay to lead today? Hellhouse asked. Turning to look at him, Jack asked him, What? Continuing to look at his pre-flight checklist, Hellhouse clarified, Do you, uh, do you want to lead today? I'm knackered, as the Brits say, and I could use the extra sleep. You okay taking over during assembly? You, you want me to? Yeah. Jack was taken aback by Hillhouse's offer, but then again, he remembered when he flew with Hillhouse last time that Hillhouse had allowed Jack to sleep during assembly. Okay, sure, Jack replied, sitting up straight in his pilot seat. Hey, you know, me and Benson, we kind of have this deal worked out where we take turns on sorties. One of us will leave while the other one kind of gets to relax. It's nice. If you had a rough night's sleep and need some slack, it works out. Plus, this is your crew. You're more familiar with them than I am. Jack cracked a smile and replied, I agree with that. Thanks, Hillhouse. Six minutes later, the green flare would be fired into the English morning air, and the formation would begin the long process of taxiing to the runway and then lifting off to head to today's taste of hell. Do you like war movies? Do they get your blood going? If so, I have the perfect, perfect podcast for you. This is not an affiliation. This isn't like a, we're sponsoring them, they're sponsoring us, so I got to mention them. This is just me strictly telling you about a podcast I love. The podcast is called Danger Close. It's a war film podcast where three hosts, a theater director, a movie critic and a veteran come together each week to talk about a different war movie. Guys, this is a fantastic podcast. If you want to get into war films on just more than just a surface level, this is perfect. The hosts are phenomenal. The research is impeccable and the quality of it is just phenomenal. I can't recommend this enough. So if you guys enjoy podcasts, you want more podcasts to make your day go by faster at work, or you wanted something to listen to while you're cleaning house or trying to fall asleep or you're driving in the car, guys, this is a perfect, perfect, perfect podcast to listen to. Danger Close. Check it out for yourself. If you do, 
Go onto the discussion page on Facebook and tell them that Aaron from Cancer 34 Studios and Snafu Podcast sent you. Thank you guys so much. Do you want to get more out of Snafu? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. You see, by visiting our website, www.snafupod.net, you can find all kinds of amazing free, it's important, free resources to help you find out more about the 8th Air Force in World War II and about the B-17 Flying Fortress. Right now, you can take a virtual tour of two real B-17s like the ones depicted in Snafu. Also, you can find links to movies, documentaries, and free YouTube videos, and much, much, much more. All you have to do is visit www.snafupod.net and check it out for yourself. Now, back to the podcast. The formation was flying 30,000 feet above the western city of Plormel, France, heading southeast towards the Strait of Laura, just east of the city of Saint-Nazaire. From there, they would arrive at the decision point and soon after the IP. The mission so far had been par for the course. Two squadrons of 109s attacked the formation over the Jersey Islands, but to everyone's surprise, they made only two passes in the back of the formation before they got swarmed by the two squadrons of P-38s flying as escort. Jack was still handling the controls of the war-weary B-17F, and Hillhouse was acting as the co-pilot, doing oxygen checks and other duties. Down in the nose, Timothy had his hands clutched to the handles of his Browning 50 caliber machine gun, scanning the sky, his hands shaking as he did. Looking out at the two waves of bombers in front of him, and then looking up at Hailing Mary, flying 120-some feet above them at their 11 o'clock position, he was praying to God that everything would go according to plan. He prayed this because even though the 300th was flying in the third group of the formation, the lead plane of the group still had to locate the target, and it was the lead plane's bomb release that the rest of the planes in the third group would release their bombs. So, if Helling Mary were to get hit, or they were to fall out of formation, then he would be up to bat as the lead bombardier of Group 3, a lot of pressure for his first mission. Back in the tail, Marshy was feeling the claustrophobic nature of his small cramped gunner's position. Looking down to his right, at the plane's 7 o'clock position, the nose of Fenway bombshell was just 130 feet away from where he was sitting, and it was making him uncomfortable. In training, he was used to planes being more spread out. Since the first run with the Germans seemed uneventful, Marshy's pent-up eagerness was at an all-time high. So far, he felt disappointed with his experience of flying his first combat mission. He thought it was going to be more eventful and harrowing. On the other hand, Muth was standing firm on his radio gun, looking out towards the tail section of the fortress. Muth prided himself at the fact that he was very good about controlling his emotions. He was nervous for today, of course, but he was able to shut the feelings of anxiousness off and focus at the task at hand. Sitting on the radio operator's desk was Muth's radio operator log, with the mission's major events timestamped and coded. Clipped at the top of the log was a picture of his wife that he had smuggled onto the plane, since personal effects were for the most part prohibited on missions. Every few minutes, when Muth checked his oxygen meter, 
he would look at the picture of his wife and say a quick prayer for her. In the waste compartment, Beans was looking through the open gunner's window at the formation below him. Flying in the high squadron were the B-17s belonging to the 528th squadron, and flying in the low squadron were the planes from the 531st squadron. Beans then looked behind him at Reed, the replacement waste gunner. He looked noticeably more and more terrified with each passing minute that went by. When the fighters were called in, Beans could see his body trembling. Now, he was glued to the side of the airframe, looking out of the side of his gunner's opening. After eight minutes or so, Beans asked the rookie gunner if he was going to be alright. Reed nodded his head quickly, closing his eyes as he did. Is everything alright back there? Hillhouse asked after hearing Beans call over the intercom. Oh, uh, oh, he's fine. Beans responded. Soon after, Muth received a call and relayed the information that the formation was to lower two angels or 2,000 feet to avoid high altitude clouds that were essentially up ahead. Since the call was muffled and even staticky, Muth went into the waste compartment between the ball turret and the left waste gunner, Reed, and began extending the trailing antenna so he could get a better reception. After returning to his radio desk, that's when he heard the call come over the intercom. Oh yeah, we're coming up on the waypoint. Knowing what this meant, Hillhouse made the announcement over the intercom. Alright, men. We're going to be uh, going right into the area known as Flack Alley. The river that connects St. Nazaire and Nates or whatever, however you say it, is heavily defended. And this could get rough. Strap on this flak vest and flak helmets now. All throughout the plane, men were putting on their flak vests, with the exception of Tommy in the ball turret and Marshy in the tail. It was during this time that Beans helped Reed put on his flak vest. The entire time he did so, he saw Reed's hands were violently shaking, and Beans was growing more concerned about the mental well-being of this rookie gunner. Before he could ask any questions, the call came in that the formation had arrived at the decision point and were heading towards the IP. After the call came in, Beans felt the plane bank hard to the left as they turned down the straight Laura. Before they leveled off, the sky opened up with flak. Flak shells began exploding all over the formation, and the B-17s were being knocked around because of it. As the planes came back together, a B-17 from the 531st Squadron, flying the low squadron, took a direct hit to its number 4 engine, sharing off the right wing tip. The fortress then slammed into a B-17 flying the number 5 spot of the same squadron, and the two B-17s plummeted towards Earth, with no shoots to be seen. All of this happened right before Reed's eyes, whose only friend was flying in that crew that had their engine and wing blown off. Looking for any chutes, Reed began hyperventilating. Beans quickly went to his aid, trying to calm him down. Since Beans' voice was echoing into the intercom, that's when Ruth was sent back to check up on the situation. Beans, in a moment of high stress, commanded Ruth to return to his radio room, because he had it handled. After getting Reed back to his station, and getting him into position, Beans patted him on the back and soon returned to his station. From there, Beans watched as the river passed by below them, with not a cloud to cover them. They were in plain sight of the anti-aircraft batteries and flat guns that lined the river. 
Marshy in the tail of the plane was bouncing all around in a small compact space and couldn't believe what he was experiencing. Nothing in his training could have ever prepared him for a ride like this. Soon, another B-17, this time from the group flying behind the 300th, took a direct hit and exploded into a fireball filled with shreds of metal. The sight nearly gave Marshy a heart attack. After calling it in, a flak shell exploded just underneath the tail compartment, and in a flash, four small holes riddled the tail floor all around Marshy. After realizing how close he had just come to dying, he began to sweat profusely, and he was overloaded with an intense feeling of regret and fear. Up in the nose, Sal had slammed his head against the bulkhead where his navigation equipment on this older model was located. Cussing under his breath, he looked down at his flight map and saw that they were approaching the IP. Navigator the pilot, we're at the IP. Up in the cockpit, Hillhouse looked over at Jack, giving him a go-ahead to give the controls over to Timothy. Jack nodded his head and called it in. Okay, Timothy, I have a pilot on. She's all yours. Timothy down the nose felt like he was going to have a heart attack. He never thought his war was going to be like this. The flak shells looked and sounded like something out of a science fiction movie. With each explosion, it was as though someone was slamming their fist into his chest. Hunching over his rough-looking bombsite, Timothy called out, Bomb in here to crew! Bomb bay door is opening! We are on the bomb run! As the bomb bay doors opened, a flak shell exploded just under the right wing, sending shrapnel right through the wingtip, just right of the number 4 engine. Calling it in, Bean suddenly began feeling uneasy as he felt like the room was spinning. Struggling to keep his balance, Beans fell against the side of the waste compartment and then fell onto the floor. Looking down, Reed thought that Beans had gotten hit and began screaming over the intercom. Oh shit! Sure. I, I got us hit! I got us hit! I got us hit! Quit fucking screaming! Which gunner is it? Jack asked as he and Hillhouse were looking over their flight controls to see if the hit had damaged anything. It's, it's, it's the other waste gunner! It's the other waste gunner! Reed called out. Ready, man, go back and check it out. Jack called in. Now I got it. Move the ship back down. Willie thundered, quickly getting out of his turret and heading towards the waste compartment. Well, I'm not hit, I'm not hit, I'm fine. Beans yelled over the intercom, trying to get back up. No, he's not! He can't get back up! He can't get back up! Reed panicked, as he was now having a panic attack, standing next to Beans. As Willie entered into the waste compartment, with Moose following behind him, Jack began calling for Willie to get back in his turret, but to no avail, since Willie's audio cord was now unplugged, along with Moose. Willie arrived at where Beans and Reed were located, seeing Beans attempting to get back up on his feet and Reed hanging on to the side of the waste compartment. Willie pulled down his mask and yelled, You know, you could have tried helping him get back up, you dumb fuck. Willie then got down to check Beans out. And just then, another flak shell exploded just under the plane, sending the men tumbling to the floor. Ah, oh, son of a bitch, that was too close. Too fucking close for comfort. Tommy called in. Muth, who was just getting up after falling back into the radio room, saw two large holes punched through the floor in the radio room, in the same place where he was just standing. One of the holes was less than an inch from where his foot currently was. Reed arose back up and saw that the left wing had a few small holes punched into the section where the flaps were located. He began panicking some more. 
That's it! That's it! That's it! I'm getting out of here! Reed began shouting out. Willie, looking up, saw Reed's body language and knew that things were gonna get bad. Seeing Reed unplugging his audio cord and then taking off his flak vest, Willie began shouting, asking Reed to what he was doing. With looks of pure fright in his face, Reed threw off his flak vest and began heading toward the waste compartment door. Willie quickly leaped up and met Reed at the door. Meanwhile, Muth came to Beans' aid, attempting to help him get back up. What are you doing? Willie yelled out to Reed. I'm, I'm bailing out! We're not gonna make it! Reed shouted back, fumbling through the door handle. Trying to stop him from opening the door, Willie yelled back. Look, we didn't get the order to fucking bail out. We've got four engines still running. Fuck you! I gotta get out of here! He was shouting over top of Willie before he pushed him off to the side and flew open the door. Just as Reed was about to exit the plane and hit the slipstream, Willie grabbed a hold of his parachute strap and pulled him back in, throwing him onto the floor of the waste compartment. Willie, cussing under his breath, forcefully picked Reed back up, pinned his body up against the side of the waste compartment, right next to the exit door, and then sent a fist right into Reed's nose. There! Now you can go, you fuck! Willie screamed as he then chucked Reed out of the plane, only to see him slam into the horizontal stabilizer, and then flounder into the morning sky. Asshole. Commented Willie, before attempting to close the waste compartment door. What the hell? Do do, did someone bail out? Tommy asked. Hey, it was Reed! Beans replied into the intercom after watching the events take place. What? Wait, 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 we lost the gunner? Jack asked. As Beans was being lifted up by Muth, he replied. He bailed out. He was... Well, he was thrown out. It, it's complicated. Willie, shaking his head, headed it back towards his turret. And along the way, that's when the call came in. Bombs are releasing! And one by one, the four 1,000-pound semi-armor piercing bombs and the four 500-pound cluster bombs fell from the bomb bay and into the harbor down below. As Timothy was about to close the bomb bay doors, another flak shell exploded just under the nose compartment, sending Timothy tumbling off his chair, falling to the right, and Sal once again slammed his head into the overhead bulkhead. Timothy heard Jack ask if everything was alright up in the nose, and he also heard Sal respond saying that he and Timothy looked fine. Looking around, Timothy saw holes punched all around his compartment. Two small holes were located at the bottom of his nose cone, and there was also a giant piece of shrapnel sticking into the side of his northern bomb site. Also, his gear components which controlled the bomb bay doors were also busted, meaning he'd have to close the bomb bay doors manually. As Timothy began to relay this information, that's when the formation began banking hard right in order to head to the rally point, which was Maysheer, France, about 20 miles northeast of their current location. As Timothy held on for dear life, as the bomber slowly made its turn, he began to feel lightheaded. Wondering if he was feeling woozy because of the banking of the bomber, or from the constant thunder of flak shells, he happened to look down and saw that his oxygen hose had been damaged from flak. The hose was nearly sliced in half. As Timothy looked over at Sal, dark circles began to close his vision. And before he knew it, or had the chance to say anything, everything went black. Do you want to get more out of Snafu? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. 
You see, by becoming a supporter of the podcast, you will receive bonus content such as pictures and profiles of all the characters mentioned in today's episode, pictures and maps of the airfield and surrounding areas, as well as formation breakdowns of past, present, and future missions, and Q&A episodes. There is so much for you to gain by donating $3 or $10 to help support the podcast. If you would like to be a part of Snafu each week, please visit our Patreon page. The link for that's down in the show notes. Any support goes a long way in helping the podcast to continue. Your contribution is making a huge difference. Now, back to the podcast. Timothy awoke to the sounds of roaring engines in his ears and looked up at the riveted metal ceiling with four square windows making a cross above him. Looking all around him, he saw Sal sitting at his navigator's desk looking over his flight map. Strapped to his head and face was his oxygen mask, but the oxygen hose wasn't damaged anymore. Slowly lifting up his body, he saw, laying underneath the floor under his bombardier's chair, was his disconnected, damaged oxygen hose. Sal, seeing Timothy moving, called in that Timothy was awake now. Since Timothy's audio line was still plugged in, he replied, What? What? What happened? Your oxygen line was hit. Luckily, Sal had an extra hose in his bag. You can thank him, replied Jack. Timothy looked over at Sal, who met his glances, and he gave him a slight head nod, to which Timothy did the same. Uh, where, where are we? Timothy asked, getting himself up and heading back to his chair. We're about to fly over London. Sal answered. London? Timothy asked, looking down at his watch, which read 12.09. This meant that over an hour and a half had passed since he had passed out. It was while he tried to figure this out that Timothy realized that he was having trouble forming thoughts in his head as he still felt lightheaded, almost as though his head were up in the clouds. Yeah, you you woke up shortly after passing out, but you weren't making much sense and you fell back asleep, Sal commented. Trying to process the information, that's when Timothy looked down and saw the city of London laid out below him. From where he was sitting, he could see Battersea Park, and then Big Ben, and then London Bridge, all from 10,000 feet up. It was breathtaking. 20 minutes later, the 300th arrived in Thurlow. Only two planes were shot down on the mission to France, both of which were from the 531st Squadron. Among the 530th Squadron, the only casualty suffered was Fenway's tail gunner, 19-year-old John Bogart of St. Charles, Missouri, who was killed instantly when a flak shell exploded near his gunner's position and sent shrapnel his way. Fenway Bombshell was the first plane to land in the 530th Squadron, since they were slowly losing fuel out of a jaggered hole cut into their right wing. Parnell landed his plane on fumes. The second plane to land was Bad Penny, which sustained heavy damage to their tail. Their entire rudder was missing from a flak shell that went right through it as the plane was turning to get to the rally. Luckily, by some miracle, their tail gunner was left unharmed. The next plane to land was Desperate Journey, who returned without a single scratch on it. After that, Hilling Mary came in to land, but couldn't lower their landing gear, and so they had to call in for an emergency belly landing. 
From the air, Jack and the rest of the crew watched as Hilling Mary headed down to the tarmac, and like a sled sliding down a snowy hill, they gently landed in the grass along runway two, coming to a full stop about a quarter of the way down the runway. Hellfire from above landed next with nothing but a few flak holes punched into their Bombay area. Following Hellfire, finally, was for Mother and Country, with holes peppered in her right wing, left flap, tail compartment, nose compartment, and Bombay. When Mother and Country touched down, sounds of what sounded like a baseball being thrown around at the metal siding of the bomber began ringing through the plane. Each man looked at one another in shock and surprise. As Mother and Country slowed down, the sounds and the small quakes of contact stopped. As Mother and Country came to a full stop on their hard stand, the men all got out to see what was causing the sound. Almost immediately, Tommy was the first one to solve the mystery as he exited the bomber and saw the trail radio antenna still lying on the ground behind the plane. Muth, you dumbass! Did you forget something? As soon as Muth exited the bomber and saw the antenna himself, he felt blasted with embarrassment. As the men were heckling Muth for his mistake, Wooly called out while patting Muth on the back. Listen, it's a good thing this isn't our ship. Soon, other airmen gathered around the tail section of Mother and Country, welcoming and greeting the men on returning home safely. Marshy's friend Shitbird was the first one to arrive, and he looked around the crew and asked, Did you, did you guys lose a guy? We sure did. The bastard tried to bail on us, but Willie, he made sure he sent him out the old Italian way. Tommy called out. What does that mean? Shitbird asked. Willie here threw him out of the fucking plane, Marshy shouted. Shipbird looked at Willie with a large amount of respect and honor and offered him a cigarette. As Willie took it, that's when Shipbird began talking about how bad the mission was to Marshy, and soon, they both were reliving the day's events. As they talked, Willie and Tommy began chuckling to one another over how Marshy and Shipper were talking. Finally, after a while, Marshy looked over at the two and asked them what they were looking at and laughing at. You think that was bad? Tommy asked. Today? I thought it was hell, Shipbird commented. That? What you saw today? That was nothing. Look, I'm not trying to scare you or anything like that. I'm just telling you. It wasn't a milk run by any means, but that was one of our easier missions we've had so far. Beans commented after lighting up a cigarette too. You know, I... Gotta be honest, I thought we could see more krauts up in the sky, mentioned Muth. Oh, trust me, California. You'll have plenty of appointments with old uh, Heinrich Dick in the Ash in the future. Who knows? Maybe you'll get lucky and slap one of them down just like me and Beanch have, Willie shouted out. <laughs> you don't gotta tell me. Look, I'll win this war single-handedly. I'll take out half the German Waffle House or whatever it's called by myself, Marshy said slapping his tail gunner's position in mother and country. Is that so? Called out a voice from behind where the men were talking. It was Jack. With him was Hillhouse, Timothy, and Sal. Yes, sir, Marshy said. Sir. Uh, come on, boys. Let's get to the uh, debriefing hut and get some lunch in our bellies, commanded Jack as he began walking backwards, leading the men towards Pennsylvania Avenue. Along the way... Jack would meet up with Parnell's crew and Tango's crew. 
Jack was astonished at how numb Parnell seemed to be, despite the fact that he had lost another crew member today. He almost didn't seem phased by it as he walked and talked with Jack about the mission. Meanwhile, Muth, walking about 30 yards behind the officers, was processing the mission and what he had felt and saw. If what Bean said was true, and what they saw today wasn't the worst of it, then he knew his chances of making it back home to see his wife and child was a lot slimmer than what he originally thought. Later that night, at the Enlisted Men's Club, Willie and Tommy were filling Mills in on what happened on the mission. With several pints of beer in their system, the three men laughed at Willie's retelling of what happened to Reed. Sitting in the leather chairs by the fireplace was Muth and Beans. Jack had forced Beans to get checked out by the doctor to see what caused him to fall. Come to find out, Beans was suffering from a mild case of vertigo. Because of this, Beans was limiting himself to just water for the evening, while Muth was on his second pint of ale. The two got to know each other some more, and Beans proceeded to ask Muth loads of questions about being a father and raising a family. Meanwhile, Marshy, Shipbird, and the rest of his friends barged in the doorway and made their way to the bar. Once they got their drinks, the large group of rowdy airmen huddled around Willie and asked him to retell the story for Marshy's friends, much to Willie's delight. In the officers' club, Sal and Timothy were both seated with Ronnie and the men from his crew over by the entrance. Timothy was cleared by the doctor as having a minor reaction to passing out from a lack of oxygen. Despite this, Timothy seemed to have more pep to a step as he was becoming more talkative with men like Jim Appleton and Einstein than he had been with anyone else. Sal took a liking to men like Ronnie and his new co-pilot, who got to fly with Hellfire for his first mission. The man had a long, southern drawl, dark, beady eyes, and a thick mustache. His name was 2nd Lieutenant Jeremy Hayhoe of Gaimon, Oklahoma, not too far from where Ronnie was from. Jack watched the two guys from his crew socializing out of the corner of his eye as he was sitting at a table with Hillhouse, Benson, Tango, and Bill Davies, enjoying their company. At the moment, Parnell and Slim Jim were with Brolin and the rest of Hilling Mary, finishing up a game of basketball, which had lasted so long that they finally had to call it quits when the sun came down. Jack should be expecting them in any minute to arrive. Jack sat with a smile on his face, listening to Hillhouse tell Benson about the day's mission, explaining how good Jack was at leading his crew today. As Jack listened, he couldn't help but wonder why he ever doubted that he could be the chief of Little Bull. Hillhouse certainly thought Jack had what it took. Things seemed to go rather well in his eyes when he flew with Tailwinders on their first mission. Why did the boss cause such a storm of self-doubt within him, he thought to himself. But that's when the thought occurred to Jack. What the hell happened to the boss? And where was he? Thank you for listening to episode 5 of season 2 of Snafu, a historical fiction podcast depicting the average life of Obama crew in World War II. If you would like more information about the podcast, please visit our website and our Patreon page. 
Both links are down in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned next week for episode 5 of Snafu.